0: Hello, everyone. I'm Claire Grace, Chief Patient Officer at Parexel. In this podcast episode, we turn our attention to improving rare disease drug development. I'm joined by Dr. Lucas Kempf, Vice President of Regulatory Affairs at Parexel. Sarah Glass, Chief Development Officer at NLM Foundation, a non-profit organization dedicated to serving nano-rare patients, and Stacey Hurt, whose youngest son Emmett suffers from a genetic chromosome abnormality so rare that his syndrome doesn't even have a name. While rare diseases may be rare, there are more than 7,000 known conditions and more than 300 million people worldwide have a rare disease. However, so few, in fact, less than 10% have available treatments. So how can we make progress for rare disease patients? I want to start by getting a first-hand perspective. Stacy, you have a unique perspective as a mother and a caregiver. Tell us about your son, Emmett, and how he was first diagnosed. Yeah, thanks for having
1: me today because this is such an important conversation to have about rare disease. So Emmett was born in 2005 and we have an older son, Griffin, who's our typical son. And so from seeing Griffin, we knew really what a typical child and a typical developmental path looked like. So as Emmett was developing, we noticed that he missed all of his six-month milestones And that's when we knew that something was wrong. So we went to our pediatrician and the first thing that she did was order an MRI of the brain. And when the MRI came back, it was completely blank, meaning it was completely white. And when you talk about the brain, you talk about having gray matter in your brain, so it should show up gray. And unfortunately, Emmett showed up white, which meant that there were no connections happening in the brain. There was limited to no brain activity happening. So the next step from that was ordering blood work. And the blood work that they ordered, of course, was a genetic or genomic sequencing to see if he had any of the more common well-known syndromes. And so that would be like your Down syndrome, Angelman syndrome, Fragile X syndrome, some of those ones that we know. And Emmett blew through those. None of those came back positive on him. He he didn't have any of the well-known syndromes. So then it was a second level of blood work. Now, again, you're taking blood work on a baby And the second level of blood work was for the less common syndromes and chromosome material duplications and deletions and things like that. So that one came back with a duplication of material on the Q arm of chromosome one. So it's a chromosome one Q duplication at the end of the chromosome. So chromosome one is the largest chromosome in the body. It affects many functions. And this karyotype of his genetic material of this duplication is one of three known cases in the world. So we went to the literature, there was a boy in Italy with it, a girl in the UK and Emmett at the time, and that was 2006. So we just had him resequenced. We're gonna see what those come back. We're awaiting those results to see if that shows anything different. So you get this diagnosis that comes back and you see the geneticist. And I didn't know anything. I work in healthcare. I have two master's degrees, one in healthcare. My husband has an MBA. And between the two of us, we didn't know anything about what that meant. The first thing I asked was, Is this something that can be fixed? Is there a treatment? Is there a drug? Can he get an injection? Is there a surgery? Because that's what you want to do. You want to fix the problem. You wanted to fix your child. And the geneticist said to us in no uncertain terms, your child will never walk or talk. Get used to it. That's what she said. I've told the story. Some of you have heard it before, but I will never forget those words. It was 16 years ago. It was just as raw and real as today. Hearing it, talking about my child in those terms was inexcusable and I'll never get over it. And I just remember looking at my husband and I just completely broke down. There was nobody to support me. There was no mental health counselor there to support me. That's just the way that it went down. So you have to grapple with that news. And then you're on to more tests. And then immediately they sent us to start the journey of checking all of his systems from head to toe to see if he did need any immediate surgeries. So every system in the body had a corresponding specialist that we saw. And we stopped counting at 60 different specialists, six zero. There were more, but we just were so depressed at that point that we stopped counting at 60 because it was it was just the same thing over and over again. See the specialist, order a test, get the test result over and over and over again and determine the course of action. So um, it, it was a harrowing, harrowing process. I uh, had a, I was working at the time. I had to take six months off of work. Uh, I went on short-term disability for depression and um, to deal with my son's diagnosis. It was really the worst day of my life it was the worst experience of my life yeah
0: oh Stacey that's so upsetting and so shocking to hear that someone could be so careless and unempathetic. as that grew what other areas have been challenging during his healthcare care journey with him
1: I'll tell you I'll never forget Sitting at my desk in our in our front office room, and we live sort of in one of these idyllic neighborhoods, right? We live on a cul de sac, and uh, we we had just gotten the news, and I looked outside, and there were parents with kids on their on their bikes and running around. The parents were talking, or maybe holding a beverage in their hand, having a good time, while their kids just roamed around and. I'll never forget thinking to myself, that'll never be me. That'll never be me just watching my child, you know, ride their bike or run or walk around. And I'm just standing there talking. That'll never be me. And like I said, you know, you can hear that 16 years later, that feeling never goes away. So it was really the feeling of depression that we would not have a normal family or a normal child. And um, along with, I had no idea how hard I would have to fight for him and advocate for him. And like I said, my husband and I both have worked in healthcare. And as we went through all these different appeals processes and and, and documents and everything, you know, we knew how to speak the language of healthcare. I remember saying to my husband, what does everybody else do who doesn't know how to navigate the system, who doesn't have the supports that we do, doesn't have the, the finances that we do. I had no idea how hard I would have to fight and stand up for my son to get what he needs and what he deserves. And then of course, the lack of caregiving. Emmett needs 24-7 care and, and nursing. He needs medications. He is an aspiration risk. He needs chest percussion. And as we know, especially with COVID, there's no nurses to be found anywhere. There's nobody to help me. There's no respite. I never get a break. I never, ever, ever get a break. And that's at age 51. And after doing it 16 years nonstop, I'm pretty burned out. He's a permanent baby. That's how I try to explain it to other people is I say, remember when you had a baby and you were doing laundry all the time and you were changing diapers and you were lifting them, feeding them. That's my life. And that will always be my life. That will never change. I have a permanent baby who I have to do all of these things with, except that now he's 95 pounds. So I'm trying to lift 95 pounds, you know, off the floor, not just (laughs) swaddling or cuddling an infant, you know, my infant is 95 pounds and that's the best way to describe it. Yeah.
0: That must be so, so difficult. And I know that you've worked so hard over so many years to try and help Emmett. You shared that there's not a specific treatment for Emmett's syndrome, but were any treatment options, even clinical trials ever presented to you to help care for Emmett?
1: We were looking for sort of this cure-all, right? This panacea that would fix him. And unfortunately to date, we have not seen that. We saw a developmental pediatrician early on who sort of specialized in special needs or rare conditions. And he said that eventually there would be stem cell research that would help maybe repair this sort of mutant DNA. We haven't seen it to date I am still hopeful. I'm reading all kinds of good things about stem cell research, repairing sort of acute conditions. And I'm sort of hopeful and optimistic that the stem cell research will evolve to a point where it could help Emmett. 16 years later, I'm not naive to think that he's going to be able to be fixed, but I think that maybe there's something out there that could improve his quality of life through repairing the DNA. Other than that, the medications that he takes... He has constipation, so he takes Miralax. He has motility issues, so he takes flax oil. He takes fish oil, maybe for brain development. But these are all sort of you know, things to, to treat different aspects of his condition. But to treat the condition itself and dramatically improve his quality of life, no, but, and I remain hopeful that in my lifetime, that I'll see something that will be a breakthrough for Emmett. That's what I'm living for. And that's what I'm praying for, quite frankly.
0: We're really, really hopeful too that there will be a treatment for Emmett in our lifetime. But it's been 16 long years now into this journey for you. And you've obviously gained a lot of experience. What would you say to another parent who's just received a diagnosis that their child has a rare disease? Or for the parent who's in the middle of the daily challenges of caring for their children, what would you say to them?
1: First of all, I would tell them that what they're feeling is normal. The emotions, the feeling of isolation, depression, anxiety, having your world turned upside down, the rug ripped from beneath you, that those are all valid feelings. I had all of them. I still, to this day, as you can hear on the podcast, still have them. They never go away. I take medication for my mental health to to cope with my son's rare disease. I'm, I'm not ashamed to say that. And take care of you. And like I said, acknowledge all of those feelings and, and do self-care and invest in your own mental health to deal with your child's rare diagnosis. That's number one. Number two is I would tell a parent that they need to fight for their child. Unfortunately, I'm just going to tell you the straight up truth is that you're going to have to continually fight and do not be afraid to press for answers that you deserve. If you don't feel good about an answer you've received and you don't understand it, ask for more clarification. I don't understand. What does that mean? Where do I go now? Who can I talk to about that? And that's tough. None of us want to be the squeaky wheel, but I have learned to become the squeaky wheel over the years because that's the only way that I'm going to get anything done. And it's for my son. So nobody else is going to fight for your child but you. You are the person that is going to be their champion and their voice. My son is nonverbal. So I am literally his voice. I will always speak up for my child. And so get on your best game face because. The system is not at all set up for children with special needs, children with rare diseases who turn into adults with rare diseases. The supports are not there and you need to create the supports and you need to craft your own journey.
0: It's such a difficult journey. People have to travel, isn't it? And and while everyone is different in their presentation in rare diseases there are millions of people around the world with a rare disease what's your hope for them and for their caregivers
1: i speak to some people in the rare disease community and unfortunately there are still so many undiagnosed rare diseases as difficult as my journey has been at least i know what i'm dealing with at least i i have a a diagnosis of a chromosome abnormality with a syndrome that, as you said, doesn't have a name, but at least I know what I'm dealing with. So my hope, number one, is that people who don't have answers get the answers that they deserve. Because I can't imagine just having something and you don't know what it is or why it is. It's tough enough for me. I go around every day wondering, what did I do wrong in my life that my son has to suffer, that my son has this rare disease. I did everything right. I was an athlete. I took care of my body. I exercised and this happened. And, and I came to understand that things just happen and life isn't fair, right? The old cliche, life isn't fair. But my hope is that research can help resolve some of this unfairness. And that through drug development and, and through life science innovations, that those of us that life just happened to, that we can get some help, that we can get a treatment that will improve quality of life. Uh, My son works so hard every single day. And as hard as I work, he's working 10 times harder to be his best self. And so I would hope that There will be some research breakthroughs that are going to help make his life just a little bit easier and better and happier for Emmett.
0: I'm really hopeful too that there'll be a treatment. I really am. I think we've made great strides in research from sequencing the human genome and we're really starting to see the dividends of that come through in in new treatments and I'm sure those treatments will continue to develop with new technologies and new methodologies and I'm very hopeful of, of good treatment options for these children in the future. We've talked a lot about the challenges with caring for a child with rare disease but beyond his condition... Tell us about Emmett today. How's he doing today? How is he? Emmett is doing way more than any
1: of the doctors ever expected. I can say this as his mother, that the doctors just expected Emmett to be a blob, just sort of exist. But through our hard work, through me ambulating him every day and moving him and interacting with him and showing him love, he is beautiful and happy. And he has these big blue eyes and a beautiful smile. And he has dimples like his mother. And we just had Valentine's Day together. And we cuddled and he looked at me and he knows that he's loved by his mother and his father and his family and every his nurse and everybody who cares for him. And he is happy. He doesn't seem to be in pain and he's doing great. He's working hard and he inspires me and everybody around him to be our best selves. And I'm so grateful to Emmett. He's made me a better person. He's made me a better mother. He's given me a much better, broader, richer view of the world. So
0: thank you for asking. He's
1: doing fantastic.
0: Thanks so much, Stacy. It's great to hear that he is doing well. And I can agree with you. Those blue eyes are absolutely beautiful. Thank you for sharing your story today and, and for telling us how Emma is. Stacy. it's really appreciated. Thank you.
1: It was an honor.
0: Stacy's story is one that millions of parents and caregivers around the world are facing. And like Stacy, many of those have nano-rare diseases that are unique to only one or a few known individuals. So what research is being conducted to help bring new therapies to those with rare disease? Next, we sit down with Lucas Kemp from Paracel and Sarah Glass of NMRM to give us this insight. Hi, Lucas. Hi, Sarah. Thank you both for joining me today.
2: Thank you for having us.
0: Yeah, thank you for having us. Stacey's just shared a really profound perspective about the immense challenges that parents and caregivers have with caring for their loved ones with a rare disease and like Stacey we know one of those struggles is finding answers related to diagnosis and treatment options. What are some of the considerations for conducting and accelerating rare disease clinical trials and studies? Let's start with you Lucas.
2: Thank you. That's a great question. One of the things that we've found in rare disease drug development is that the patient support groups play a pivotal role in not just connecting the patients once they got a diagnosis with the proper medical care and also the support of other people who are struggling with very similar issues, but they also have been providing fairly sophisticated programs where they develop their own natural history studies which end up providing the platform for many of these rare diseases in order to have clinical trials. Unfortunately with rare diseases we don't know a lot about how they progress, what the variability is from patient to patient, and what is the best way to measure these changes in a way that you can conduct clinical trials.
3: And to just add to what Lucas shared, you know, ultimately the engagement with the patient community needs to start early. So I think really and truly understanding what are meaningful outcomes, what is a meaningful change in a patient and a caregiver and a family's lives is so critical to really position, you know, drug developers and anybody interested in therapeutics and helping these patient populations to really be working towards a common goal. And you know, aligning the endpoints really with regulatory expectations, but also these meaningful differences in patient lives is, is absolutely critical.
0: Sarah, we know that NLRM and Parexel recently announced a partnership. And for background for our listeners, NLRM is a non dedicated to serving nano-rare patients whose disease is the result of a single genetic defect that's unique to only one or, or very few individuals. How will this partnership help address the needs of this unique patient population? There
3: are a number of key success factors that really contribute to Enlarm's ability to discover, develop, and provide individualized therapies to patients for free for life. You know, Enlarm is founded upon three decades of experience in antisense technology. We really embed quality and rigor at every stage of the process. As we scale our ability to meet the needs of the patients, these critical success factors become more and more apparent. So these success factors, such as the ability to support the physicians and the institutions, the ability to collect meaningful data to enable the treatment decisions is really the primary goal, and also to enable aggregate analyses across these NF1 patients, as well as to meet the regulatory needs. Parkcell's leadership in clinical operations, in real-world data, and in regulatory engagements is critical to our ability to establish the infrastructure now. In addition, by laying and establishing this really solid foundation, working with Paracel now, we're enabling NLRM in the future to be able to help many more patients. And this will be through our investigator initiated studies with these different NLRMs. And there will be many taking place concurrently. And we really need a partner that has strength in all of these areas to help us be successful in the future.
0: Lucas, you mentioned that rare disease patients require both an individual natural history study and a clinical study. Can you talk more about natural histories? What are they and how can they help?
2: So, a natural history study is a study that looks at the course of a disease as it would progress without interventions. Um, in the cases of these rare diseases, frequently we don't know exactly how these progress over time, because any individual physician may have seen only one or two of these uh, patients over the course of their entire career. So natural history studies make an effort to collect systematically that information across multiple different patients so that we can get a better idea of how they progress. Sarah was just discussing the importance for these individualized patients is becoming more and more evident. As we have currently are experiencing the benefits of the Human Genome Project and these massive natural history studies that were combined with molecular biological and genetic biomarker analysis, we're finding more and more people who are not fitting into the typical box of what causes their disease. They have individual genetic variation that is contributing to their disease, and these individuals with that variation may not necessarily fit into the standard way that the drugs are being developed. Traditionally, industry has ignored the individual patient, though right now, as uh, Sarah discussed, with the current technology within ASOs or maybe gene therapies, we may be actually be able to target specific therapies for an individual's particular variation. The challenge is there isn't really a regulatory precedence for these pathways. How do you make a drug for an individual, then how do you continue providing that therapy for them for the course of their life? With the natural history studies, we have to understand in the case of that single individual, are we actually making an impact? Are we changing their life in what Sarah discussed as a clinically meaningful way for them and their families?
3: Yeah, I think those are really great points, Lucas. And just to add to that, you know, we are finding that truly even in some of these nano-rare or the micro-rare you know, communities where there may be 50 or 100 or a few hundred individuals diagnosed with the same syndrome caused by the same gene, There are individuals who have unique mutations that have very different clinical manifestations. And so even within patients who have the same mutation, we're finding that each patient is absolutely unique. And that's what NLorm is really focused on, is trying to say, we know every patient's unique. The only person you can be compared to is yourself. So really and truly, we need to collect the data before the treatment to enable that physician to know, okay, and now we started treatment here's the difference that we're seeing, and it's beneficial for this patient, so we want to continue on with the therapy.
0: Today, there's an abundance of ways that real-world data is generated. How can we use real-world data to help close the information gap in rare disease research? Let's start with you, Sarah.
3: So I think like Lucas touched on a little bit earlier, you know, rare disease communities, each individual patient community is feverishly trying to collect data, whether that's participating in existing registries, whether that's establishing your own registry, whether that's joining organizations who are very focused and driven towards the highest rigor of data collection, like RareX or Simon Searchlight, or even some running their own natural history studies. And I also have a son who has a nano rare disease, and for our own community, we are actually participating in many of those different areas. And I think the main goal here is how are we, as a drug discovery and development and a clinical research community, supporting these patient families to bring all of these data sources together. I think what's really interesting, and a lot of the expertise that BarExcel's real-world data team is bringing to the table, is that the technology is there. We actually can do this. We just need to make the effort and do it. It's not gonna be easy. But really bringing all these data sources together for these patient communities is really going to be so critical moving forward. And then positioning ourselves to provide that data in a meaningful way to pharma or whoever may want to use it to help that patient community move forward with therapies.
2: I agree. The medical community has made a big effort over the course of the last couple of decades trying to standardize and regularize the way that we collect medical information so that it will have a meaningful impact on patients overall. As probably everybody's experienced in the course of the last decade, at least, that their electronic medical records have gotten more and more sophisticated. The ability to share that data has become more and more sophisticated. And the way that Now, we as researchers, regulators, drug developers can leverage that information in order to make really meaningful impacts in some of these populations that we can help before without somebody going through stacks and stacks of papers like in translating documents from all over the world is really been revolutionizing the way that we can approach these sort of disorders and make an impact.
0: So, related to real-world data, what about the use of external control arms? Can you describe the role they can play in rare disease studies? Lucas, can you start?
2: Sure. What we've seen is sort of an improvement in the way that we've been collecting data so that this real-world data can be converted into what we call real-world evidence, That means that the data that's being collected is being collected in such a way that it can serve uh, regulatory purposes, such as being able to be traced back and audited and be reliable in the nature of uh, how it was collected. For example, in the realm of neuropsychiatric diseases, several of the ways that we assess patients are similar, but not the same. And these clinics don't necessarily collect the same data the same way across the world. So being able to regularize that real-world data in such a way that it can be used as real-world evidence is a large process in which that we're hoping to close the gap as this is being used more and more regularly for approvals because every patient in these rare disease drug studies is precious. Every data point is important. And we need to make sure that every one of those interactions with these patients, with the medical community is generating information that can be used and leveraged to help them not only with their current problems, but also possibly help patients who have similar issues so that they can serve as a comparison for when we do have new therapies that can help them. And I think interestingly, this
3: speaks to placebo arms of trials in rare diseases. And what is the role of a placebo arm or is there a role? You know, I think you can envision from a patient or from a family's perspective, the excitement, you know, all of what we just spoke about is you're bringing data together. Potentially there's an organization developing a therapy, you know, there's a, a trial being designed and you're randomized into a trial and there's a percentage chance that you might actually be in a placebo arm. I think where data is going is really going to continue to be advantageous to enable the rigor of the trial structure and of the data analysis to be able to draw those concrete conclusions without having to put patients and their families through a trial where they might not actually be receiving the investigational therapy.
2: Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And what we've seen, as Sarah was saying, like a lot of these disorders are categorized as syndromes as the sort of signs and symptoms that patients present with that get kind of grouped under the name of some researcher who first described it, but not necessarily based on the etiology and the mechanism that the disease actually is coming. And so a lot of these diseases that we've known for a long time, say like Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's disease, Batten's disease, is being broken up into these subgroupings that are being defined more by the genes and the mechanism of the disease rather than the way that they present to the clinician in your medical visit. Therefore, the therapies are now being developed or targeting those molecular mechanisms and those genetic variations that are causing it. And so in that setting, we're getting a better sense of how to model how the disease progression is in the context of better definitions based on The biological mechanism of the disease rather than just describing it as the signs and symptoms that the patients are showing up and complaining about in the the clinic?
0: Rare diseases are collectively common and you have both touched on the many different kinds of challenges they can present. But where do you see the greatest opportunity for researchers to make progress? Sarah, what do you think from you know your perspective of working with NLRM, how do you think we can make the most impact?
3: I think the biggest opportunity is that we know now there are 8,000, 9,000 individual rare diseases, micro-rare, nano-rare diseases. You get the diagnosis and then parents and families form these advocacy groups, have to get up to speed, become a drug developer essentially, and really trying to to work and advocate for their own disease, their own syndrome, their own indication that is most intimately affecting them. I think the greatest opportunity we have is to look across these nano-rare diseases and that's why I'm so excited to be at N. Lorem. I think the other piece really is that when we're looking across, we also need to really embody the urgency that the patients and the families feel. We're in the middle of a pandemic, hopefully nearing the end. But what we saw was absolutely unbelievable. We have vaccines that were discovered and developed in these record amounts of time. Every day for a rare disease family, for a micro-rare and a nano-rare disease family and patient, is like what the whole world experienced during COVID. And it is up to us as a drug discovery and development community to actually translate that urgency into Therapeutics, into hope, into possibilities, to really making meaningful differences in these patients' lives in a time that is meaningful for them in the course of their particular disease.
2: Yeah, I would agree with Sarah. The thing that I would like to add is I think we've made improvements in what patients call the diagnostic odyssey, but I don't think we're there yet. When I first started in this work, the statistic was that it took the average rare disease patient eight years to receive a diagnosis. That is a very long time in the course of somebody's life. And in the course of a child's life, that's like an eternity. And what we know is 50% of these rare diseases affect children. And so we really don't have a lot of time to be waiting and trying to figure out what each person has. I think the big strides that we've had in recent times is the understanding that within the medical community, when you see one of these patients where you really don't know what's going on, or they fall into one of these syndromes that is being linked to these rare diseases, such as pediatric seizures, neurodevelopmental disease, autism, any of the learning disabilities, that those patients need to be worked up very rapidly because they may have a neurodevelopmental genetic disorder that possibly could be treated sooner and have profound effects on the entirety of their lives. I had the opportunity at one of the National Organization of Rare Disorders conferences to meet one of the very first gene therapy patients who was born without an immune system, and she received one of the very first gene therapies to replace her immune cells. And this was a uniformly fatal disorder. But this woman was healthy, happy, leading a productive life, had been able to go through her education, and was now inspiring other people in their own journeys to be able to make a huge difference in their own lives. And, uh, take this thing that was defining their life and making it something that was just a minor feature of their lives.
3: Yeah, that's a really powerful story, Lucas. Thank you for sharing that. I think the the diagnosis piece is so important, you know, really working now to try to bridge that gap. Not only is there the diagnostic odyssey leading up to the definitive diagnosis, but then after that definitive diagnosis, there's oftentimes then this multi-year or however long period of time during which the individuals and the patients and the families are trying to gain the knowledge, you know, and have the knowledge and to embark on what this might look like if they're happen to be affected by an indication that isn't, you know in development by a drug company at this point. And also as a scientific community, what are we doing with all of these diagnoses? With the whole genome sequencing, newborn screening, it's going to continue to increase exponentially over the next few years. And it's really up to us as a community to have the tools and to provide the patients and the, the communities with those tools to be able to more quickly turn that into a potential solution for their community.
2: Yeah, one of the things that I I think that you made an interesting point about is uh, some of these really rare variations that you pointed out that that there's even variability amongst how they're expressed in the individuals. You know, we have a National Institute of Health, but fundamentally their their research is a National Institute of Disease. They do a lot of uh, research trying to find disease causing elements, but we really haven't really scratched the surface of what is keeping people healthier. Why do you have an attenuated or less devastating course of disease for some individuals versus other individuals? There's probably already existing biological mechanisms that are helping those people towards health. And and I think like what you said with everyone starting to get their genomes done and having early childhood screening is it's providing the opportunity for us to find those mechanisms that are health-promoting in these patients because the biology has already done the experiment in those cases. They figured out a way to decrease the disease burdens in certain individuals. So there's a lot of uh, hopeful information as, as we progress in this area. And a lot of people who haven't had their genomes done don't know that they're walking around carrying multiple variations that are potentially increasing their risk for some sort of disease, or they're not going to get the disease even though they're carrying that variation. Those people can also contribute to this effort for us to develop these new drugs for um, these micro disorders and in individual patients.
3: It's a ultra precision medicine day that we, are, that we are in right now. It's a, really, it's a really amazing time. There's such a huge opportunity for us to, to do more, to understand the data and just to translate that into hope and to help for, for the patient communities.
0: Thank you both so much. This has been a fantastic discussion and I think we can all agree that we're all hopeful that we're on the horizon of new treatments for rare disease patients around the world. So again, Lucas and Sarah, thank you so much for your time today and for providing your perspectives on how we can help improve rare disease drug development. Also, huge thanks to you, Stacey, for sharing your moving story of your beautiful son, Emmett. To our listeners, if you are interested in learning more, visit parxl.com, lorem.org or stacyhurt.net. You can follow Excel on social media to learn more insights from our experts. And finally, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. Until next time, thank you for listening.